Uh, welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a journalist and podcaster and uh, do some other stuff. You can My main gig uh, gigs are a podcast called Blocked or Imported. You can also check out my Substack, Single-Minded, uh, jessesingle.com. So this is mostly just going to be uh, me taking your calls. There's there one story I wanted to highlight just for a quick spiel before we get going. Uh, this was in the Washington Free Beacon, those monsters. Uh, the headline is hospital system backs off race-based treatment policy after legal threat. Subheadline scoring rubric gave race more weight than diabetes, obesity, asthma, and hypertension combined. It's by uh, Aaron Sabarium. Not sure I'm pronouncing his name right, but whatever. Everyone mispronounces my name. So so what do I care? Uh, I'm just going to read the first couple of graphs and then talk about it for a minute. One of the largest hospital systems in the United States gave race more weight than diabetes, obesity, asthma, and hypertension combined in its allocation scheme for COVID treatments, only to reverse the policy after threats of legal action. SSM Health, a Catholic legal health system, that operates 23 hospitals across Illinois, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Wisconsin began using the scoring system last year to allocate scarce resources of Regeneron, the antibody cocktail President Trump credited for his recovery from COVID. A patient must score at least 20 points to qualify for the drug. The rubric gave three points to patients with diabetes, one for obesity, one for asthma, and one for hypertension for a total of six points. Identifying as non-white or Hispanic race, on the other hand, nets a patient seven points regardless of age or underlying conditions. So basically, uh, if you follow this carefully, you'll, you'll see that a fairly healthy person in one racial group uh, could have access to these treatments for which there are limited supplies when a much less healthy person who happens to be white can't. And, uh, you know, it sounds like this policy was changed when people brought attention to it. But what jumped out at me about this was you know, as far as I can tell, Aaron is like a, a pretty talented conservative journalist who who gets some scoops. I haven't read that much of his stuff. I'm going to read the story more closely. This is like you would think this would be a major story. This is this is a story of a big hospital system making what could be life and death decisions on grounds that any public health expert speaking honestly would tell you that just being black or being Hispanic or being Asian which is also included in non-white or uh, or Hispanic, that doesn't make you, that shouldn't count three times as much as having all these actual conditions. It's just a completely insane and unjust system. And there's an article that the Washington Free Beacon was the one who who got there and, and who got the scoop. And I've noticed this just with the most sort of hot button social justice issues, less uh famous or established players and i'm including my including myself here can just sort of waltz in and, and get the story i mean our podcast explaining what actually happened during the blake of jacob blake shooting got some attention my my uh, appearance on barry weiss to talk about kyle rittenhouse did it's just I, if you know a little bit about what's going on inside major newsrooms and their slack channels and these attempts to drive people out who who fall out of favor within the organization. I can't help but think that this has something to do with why these other players could just swoop in and get these stories. Um, by the way, you feel free to get in the queue if you, if you do have questions, because I do want most of this to be questions. Uh, so I just, I just found this striking. I mean, wouldn't you think the Washington Post or the New York times would be interested in a story like this, is, especially when you look at like the kinds of subjects they will give blanket coverage to, or these relatively minor controversies that are only noticed by super privileged people on Twitter that they will give blanket coverage to. I, I just think that this is like a really um, not a good sign. And and I also think that it, it shows this <sighs> all else being equal. If you're a member of certain racial groups, you do face certain disadvantages, but, and that can be useful for like statistical purposes and making public policy, but, but all else isn't equal. And this belief that race is like this magical force, like almost like the force from Star Wars that just imbues everything and, and is causal and creates outcomes in the absence of anything else is just really insane. And, and I guess I'm worried about this sort of consultancy class of people who believe stuff like that and can end up in positions like making policy for a hospital or um, – the podcast episode we just recorded that'll be out for everyone Monday. We we talked about NPR ended up establishing this 
convoluted system involving a whole online software package where if you're a reporter, you have to track the race of every source you talk to for stories, which I talked about on the podcast for a million reasons that that's not feasible. That doesn't make sense. There are a lot of subjects where you simply wouldn't seek out a, a proportionate number of sources by race because expertise is not distributed equally for fair and unfair reasons. So I, I just think it, it's these Folks who have these views about how everything should be imbued with this mystical understanding of race, uh, they have, seem to have some influence in pretty big organizations. Now, in this case, I guess a, a naysayer would point out that. Um, let me find a here. I'll just read one more par- short paragraph. Those plans, the plans for this this racial tier system, appear to have changed. However, after pressure from the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, a conservative legal nonprofit, that on January fourteenth threatened SM Health with a lawsuit. Hours after the group demanded SSM um, immediately suspend the use of its immoral and illegal risk calculator, the health system told the Wisconsin State Journal that the race and gender criteria are no longer utilized. So I guess they were trying to – I don't know if this is what they consciously thought, that, but they were trying to just sort of institute this without much scrutiny. And as soon as there was scrutiny, there was scrutiny they folded, which is good. But um, yeah, anyway, I just wanted to give a quick spiel about this. But uh, you guys can feel free to ask me about that or anything else. And we will start with Colin. What's up, Colin? How you doing, Jesse? Um, good. How are you? Good, thanks. Uh, it's a heavy conversation. I just want to throw in there that I, I like to picture you painting your face silver and blue uh, as you're having this discussion in preparation for the Pats game uh, later on. Yeah, my whole body, my whole body is good, painted. Good, actually. good, good. Um, I, I had a question, not about this, but about um, some trans trans rights. Uh, don't want to say rhetoric, but sort of talking points that I had a question about, and um, I. I trust you on sure. on the topic, so I was wondering if you could entertain it. Uh, um, Go for it. It's something I've kind of been having a hard time separating between narrative and fact. It's it's with trans people being denied housing. Um, I've seen figures use that, like one in ten people have been ev- evicted to their uh, due to their gender identity. Um, do you know of any sources that look into that further? Because I haven't really been able to to find anything that digs deeper than than just that one in ten have been evicted due to gender identity. One one in ten of, of who of trans people. Um, no, I'm just I'm not familiar with the st- statistic. I yeah, I, I don't I, I don't want to comment. I, I will say two other. A few other statistics that um, rights groups sometimes mention: one on the number of trans people who are murdered mm-hmm. is is just it's it's just really bad what they do because they will take people who are killed for just about any reason, and people who are often involved in sex work or the drug trade, which does not in any way make the death less tragic, but they will sort of foreground the gender identity of the person and ignore all the other context that helps explain what happened and say, use that to produce what I think are inflated statistics of the number of hate crimes against these groups. And I think there's, there's, if you're a black trans woman and and you are a sex worker, I do think you are in a dangerous situation, but oftentimes they over-exaggerate and just produce hugely inflated um, statistics about hate crimes. And then some of the stats about young trans people and suicide, I I think are just based on surveys that are just not, are a mess. So I guess I would just say that I'm generally skeptical of, of stats put out by these rights groups. Um, But it does not shock me that especially in conservative parts of the country, especially landlords who are looking to evict people for some other reason might use that as a pretense. And I'm, I'm fervently in favor of anti-discrimination laws that make that illegal to do. Uh, Do you know any of the groups uh, who have, uh, mention that statistic uh not offhand though i was just sort of s- sorting through um through different articles i've read who've just sort of kind of flippantly quoted that and and i'm my my instinct is similar to yours that i'm a little skeptical of of such uh, large numbers that that um activist groups throw out but i don't want to have just unbased kind of uh skepticism so i was just wondering if if you had had the opportunity to look into that more. Uh, I will. Yeah. I, I, or if I have time, I will. I, I think there's nothing wrong with having skepticism of any activist groups, statistics, because activist groups have an agenda right. and they're, they're, it's sort of their job to twist or shade things. I mean, if a 
conservative group said there was a spate of crimes by illegal immigrants, I'd be skeptical of that too. So uh, <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll look into that. It's worth looking into. All right. Thanks, Jesse. Nice calling. Vlad, you are the next caller. What's up? Hey, Jesse. Uh, so I guess uh, this is about um, the journalism topic you had touched on uh, a moment ago. Yeah. And it's about standards. So you, you had mentioned how it how it's strange historically uh and 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 it doesn't match our expectations of how the health of the system should work that you uh and a couple others um should be able to like you know rival a, a mainstream outlet in terms of like accuracy and, and faithfulness and reporting uh and objectivity and you know i i, I know the whole kind of uh no true objectivity debate uh and that's kind of not my uh the point of my question but the what i did want to ask about is with respect to standards if we at least agree if most people can at least agree there are there's such a thing as better and worse in terms of of reporting standards um how what do you think explains the lack of um I don't know, uh, aggressiveness or, or forth or, uh, forthrightness, um, ambition of, of newsrooms to, to just prioritize standards just as a point of excellence, because like in any other kind of organization, when you have, you know, responsibilities to get things right, technically to get things technically right in your craft, um, most people care about doing good quality work and most people understand that to do good quality work, um, putting quality above other interests sometimes can cause conflicts, but at the end of the day, you're like, your mission is to do X and that should incentivize high standards. So uh, am I, am I assuming too much that it is a failure of standards prioritization or or what else could be could be going on here you mean just for sort of the the shortcomings of newsrooms right now or or... yeah yeah particularly in terms of like 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 factual uh standards um well first of all i should say other folks should get in the queue i i usually give a few hours before i do one of these rooms i only gave one so we have less of a queue than usual please any questions comments criticisms jump in the queue uh Although, uh, no, no obligation or welcome to just lurk. Um, uh, so if you go to work in a newsroom every day, the question of what you see as your job and what you see as your priorities is going to vary hugely from person to person. I just got back from a conference and I talked to someone who spent a lot of time with the New York Times investigative team. And these are like seriously old school journalists who are very selective about what they do and don't write about. And I think they're very anti-bullshit and they would never, you know, accept the stat at face value from an activist group without reporting on it further. But I do think the norms of what a journalist's job is have, have changed. And it's not like there was this pure era of objective journalism. In fact, when like the, the initial bursts that created the American newspaper system, I think basically all newspapers were partisan. I mean, you, you still see some with names like the the whatever city Democrat. Uh, but I think if you ask like a young time staffer why they didn't cover this story, they would probably come up with a reason that seemed compelling to them. And they, from their point of view, they think they're doing good, important journalism, speaking truth to power by covering whatever they cover. It's just the the partisanship or the ideology is a little more, more explicitly baked in, I think, for the average journalist than it used to be 10 years ago. And that's partly because there was such a tremendous source of talent and experience among newspaper journalists who don't work for the Times. Because the, the what percentage of journalists ever get to work for the Times? Probably 0.0001%. So, you know, I'm I'm from Boston and Providence had a good newspaper. Nashua, New Hampshire had a good newspaper. Concord, a much smaller town, had you know a smaller, I think, good newspaper. All those folks were trained in like a very different way, where they were trained to try to keep their ideology out of the reporting. I think that's actually an impossible task, and I think there's ideology just in the question of 
where you first turn your focus to look for story ideas or whose email you return or call you return. But I, I think that hollowing out of, of all these talented journalists and the replacement with young people from privileged, mostly from privileged backgrounds, because who else can afford like the shrinking number of not great paying jobs in New York, DC, San Francisco. Uh, I think that could partly explain what's going on. Am I at least uh, starting to answer your question? I think so. Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm even less. Um, I'm I'm even less con- uh, trying to emphasize the the current moment, and I guess I, I guess I just mean the social dynamic in a in a, in a news organization. Um, definitely it it would help to have a uh, a mission alignment that would de-emphasize personal ideology of the journalist and that like in the ideal each journalist is like a journalism robot who just like uh reports things faithfully and we that that might be like a good goal but we we understand it's not attainable but even so i i it's hard for me to understand um that there could simultaneously be a recognition of what objectivity standards are like in terms of just accuracy of reporting and at the same time for that to not be potent enough to uh to realign people's incentives because in any other kind of organization there are also like internal political conflicts and external you know image things that the organization is trying to, to manage and different power players, but things still get, you know, done in, in high stakes scenarios. Um, and I'm just, it's curious why, um, why the, the emphasis on, on objectivity in, in favor of moral clarity or, or in favor of, uh, uh, you know, allowing ideological biases to seep through has been like that, that levy, seems to have broken like quite hard and quite fast rather than it being just like a side factor. And that's what I'm asking. Yeah. Well, let let me leave you with two thoughts just so I get to other people. One is um, maybe three thoughts. (laughs) So a lot of, a lot of younger journalists in particular reject those norms of objectivity. So, so from their point of view, there's nothing to go back to because and this gets complicated because I think sometimes they they overstate this case. Sometimes they make fair points, but the the view from nowhere understanding of journalism, where you interview one side and then you interview the other side, and you give both sides sort of equal weight, does have some problems because there's a lot of there's a lot of disagreements where I wouldn't want to give equal weight to both sides. Um, so I think people have recognized there's some problems with that understanding. This has always been built on a little bit of a house of sand. And along those same lines, my second point would be if you try to come up with how that, that uh, journalism robot idea you mentioned would actually be harder in practice to build without imbuing it with certain values or priorities. Because if I drop myself in Times Square and and I'm beset by information and those guys dressed up like superheroes and billboards and restaurants and I could take a train somewhere else, I need some sort of heuristic to tell me what to pay attention to and which direction to walk or who to give my money. There's no there's no way to do that in a blank slate way. And I think that's true of journalists too, because you know, they have some beat, they have some sources, uh they uh it's complicated. Um and then my third point, uh, I think that was basically it. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm a little bit fuzzy-headed today. But um, yeah, I, I think what you – oh, sorry. Third point is I think you might be overstating how functional the average non-journalistic institution is. It's, it's the most – all organizations are dysfunctional for all sorts of reasons, and they often fail to fulfill their core missions because of infighting, because of ideology, because of fads. I just think – with journalism, it's more visible because their work is done publicly and because the worst examples of journalism, of bad journalism, are blown up on Twitter. And I talk about them a lot and others talk about them a lot because we have you know, fairly significant profiles and we can direct people's attention to stuff we're, um, we're mad about. But, but thank you, Vlad. Those were very thoughtful questions. Next caller is Mickey. Hey, Jesse. How's it going? Good, good. Um, I just had two, uh, yeah, quick 
comments, thoughts about the, the COVID thing. First, I only read part of that Aaron Siberium, uh, I think that's how you say it, uh, article so far. But um, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm very curious, you know, if there's going to be some lawsuits or something going forward with this stuff. And just because I'm very, very curious as to like, are those decisions, do you think, being made by these like health systems or whatever coming it's it's almost really hard for me to imagine them coming from a doctor because you really are like potentially sentencing somebody to die for having the wrong ethnic background. Yeah, I know. I, th- I mean, this is why I think it, it would be interesting for people to dig more into this new sort of consultant class of like race experts who, so, so like every, Universities are the best example where every university now has an equity office or multiple equity offices. And, and it, it becomes a punchline, which I don't want it to be because I, yeah, there's subsets of issues here that are really important. Like um, first generation college students, first generation black college students often don't have the safety net. Someone like me does going to college. Like they don't have other people in their lives who went to college and they drop out at alarming rates. That stuff's super important for sure. That's not mostly not what like, right. DI offices do they do much wackier and less evidence based stuff? So I I really think in like this hospital situation, if you could find out who was responsible for this policy, and um, it, it would likely be some consultant rather than someone just with medical expertise. That being said, my Twitter feed is full of doctors who seem all in on this stuff and and would maybe even defend systems like this based on the other stuff they say. So can't say for sure. It's yeah, it's just. I don't want to like dwell. It's just like completely insane. It's just like giving somebody. Well, it's also illegal. I mean, it's just crazy that. Right. It has to be. And it's just so crazy to me that people don't see this anyway. So yeah, that's nuts. But I wanted to real quick um, bring up, I don't know if, if you saw this or if many people saw this, but this is a new study from like UCSF and I think Berkeley um, about uh, Omicron deaths versus um, and like the Kaiser Permanente in, in California based on um, Omicron deaths and hospitalizations versus Delta deaths and hospitalizations. And it's 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 getting a lot of attention. And I think uh, Rochelle Walensky or whoever she just mentioned it the other day um, in an interview. But basically. It, it basically is saying that the, the so the odds of dying from delta that they were seeing were something like one in a thousand cases and at this point now the odds of dying from omicron i just have it written down here were something like two in a hundred thousand of cases oh though that that's the probability of die once you have omicron of dying of I, it or yes okay. yes i'm pretty and and again i'm not a, this is just like me like looking at this chart and like listening to some stuff and like doing some like very quick calculations but you're basically like it's it's so much smaller i mean and according according to the study but and i looked it up and so the average i think the average case fatality rate for the flu in a given year is something like 10 to 20 people per hundred thousand and that's mostly older people obviously and it's just like and obviously we're having this insane surge of, of omicron so clearly a lot of people are going to die from it technically but like risk wise yeah it's just like we might and i would imagine those those you know two people that died it was literally one death in fifty two thousand cases for omicron in this in this like hospital system and it's just like it's kind of crazy that we're not hearing more about it just being like omicron could be like way less than the flu and like what is our what is our end game plan for like how we're going to get ourselves out of this you know i feel like people are starting to have that sense but it's just weird that it's not more like, hey, this is really good. Let's. No, I, and know, I, I, I think know. we could maybe tie this back to the conversation sometime. I, I, I could be over, this could be a little bit of a stretch, but when you were describing that, it made me think about journalists who cover COVID or cover COVID misinformation, put scare quotes around that, around that if they want. They're, they've been in this environment, this pressure cooker of an environment, because the last couple of years have been shit where what they're thinking about a lot of time is Donald Trump and those evil conservatives not wearing masks and not getting vaccinated. And that's the kind of thing that really Mm -hmm. does skew your reporting choices. Because I I do think there's this increasingly paternalistic view that journalists have to curate the facts and not deliver readers 
facts that are harmful, even if they are facts. So um, I, I, this makes me think of like when I write about detransition, trans people going back to their original gender and sex, I'll, I'll get, well, you know, people could interpret that as transition is bad or could use that as evidence to support bad laws. It's similar here where if you report honestly on the actual threat of Omicron causing death or hospitalization, people could use that for bad ends. But I think that gets to differences in opinion about what the mission of journalists uh, is. And I think my view is that we need to tell people true stuff and put it in context. But um, if we go beyond that role to like really curating and shaping which facts we tell people something's gone wrong. And I I don't trust myself to make the right choices in doing that versus letting people read my stuff and come to their own conclusion. Yeah, yeah. We're in a weird place, but very I weird. Guess the Omicron place. thing is looking a little bit better. Hopefully. Yeah, I, I have been. In, I don't know that when you look at some of the graphs, they look terrifying. And I, this is the first wave where I have known a lot of people who have gotten it, but oh yeah, it just seems like it could have been much worse. And it seems like hopefully all the the infection raging like wildfire, but leaving most people pretty unaffected will will bring some protection. But I guess we'll have to see. Yeah, it's and I'll leave it at this. It's it's obviously tough because it's like hospitals are really under seriously yeah. right now. Like it's like it's definitely true, but it's it's so insanely infectious that of course that's going to happen. So it's like you're saying, it's like how do you tell people, hey, you know, you know, get you know, if you're an adult, like you should get vaccinated. Like you know, especially if you're an older person, um, but just you know, bear that in mind when you go see your elderly family or whatever. But otherwise, in that, like you're fine. Like and it's just hard that we can't. Yeah, and say that. Yeah, exactly. say that. Yeah, and and I think I do think the hospitals. It's overwhelmingly unvaccinated people, and I think yeah, it's very I'm, sad. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. Thanks anyway. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Next up is uh, Andrew. Andrew, okay, you want to? Uh, oh, there we go. Okay. I can. How's it going? Hey, man. So uh, I heard you um, say something at some point about how you wish that people could just have more broader knowledge about statistics and just interpreting data. And so I guess my question is just kind of related to that. Like I'm, I kind of miss that part of my education, I feel like, and I'm frustrated when I read a lot of news stories either don't link to source data or, you know, kind of slanted in a way, you know, and I've kind of become sensitive to the way that, you know, people will use words like disproportionately um, to kind of spin data to just whatever it is, their narrative is that they want to promote. And so I don't know if you just like yeah. have any tips for how to get, uh, you know, educate yourself a little bit about interpreting statistics. And I, I just feel like we're just kind of in this epistemic, you know, crisis where it's just hard to know what the truth is and what the ground truth is. And, it's scary. I, it feels vertiginous, like we're, we're at the edge of some sort of precipice. Um, you know, I, I, it's tricky. I, the, the lazy self-serving answer would be like, I did write a book that was specifically written for lay audience with audiences without much training in that issue. And the quick fix does, there's like five or six or seven different categories of like how science communication goes wrong, uh, or how science itself goes wrong. Um, I think anyone can understand, uh, get a, gain a basic understanding of, of concepts like p-values or p-hacking or why sample size is important or the difference between correlation and causation. And, and I don't have much more of a basic understanding of those. And that, that gets you a long way. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you literally can, in some cases, just Google those terms and, and uh, figure out what they mean. I mean, you're not the first person who's – someone else basically asked me, like, to produce some sort of basic primer of like what to look for and how to become a smarter news consu- um, consumer of that stuff. And maybe that would be something good for me to write about. But um, my main message is like this, the basic things you need to know are it's not that complicated and the level of errors and uh, skewed analysis, even people publishing in very high level places do is, is astonishing. So once you've, learn the basics of this language. It's very low hanging fruit to see these sorts of errors everywhere. Mm. That's encouraging. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm sure you saw that little spat with um, Joe Rogan this week and uh, you know, kind of being forced to like cringely realize that he didn't, he didn't quite get the, um, what was it? The, um, 
the myocarditis. Uh, was this risk. with the Josh? I haven't watched it, listened yet. Okay. I was just very busy. But this is the Josh Zepp's appearance. Yeah, he, you know, in, in kind of real. He's time, a buddy. He's a buddy of mine. He's a really smart guy. Okay. Yeah, just in real time, Joe Rogan kind of had this had this prior that um, myocarditis was worse um, from the vaccine. But um, Josh, you know, brought up the point that uh, it's actually worse um, from uh, from COVID. And but then there's like this yeah. other paper that came out that's like you know says it's a little bit more complicated and it's a little bit more comparable. And either way, none of those things kind of. Uh, you know, the vaccine still makes sense on all levels, but it's just like one, it was just like a clear example of like, I don't know what's right. Joe doesn't know what's right. And, you know, I know. I, I mean, I don't, I don't need to the bottom truth of what this answer is because in, in so many people just on Twitter, just like piling on to Joe because they don't like him. And it's clear that like none of those people knew what the myocarditis, you know, stat- statistics were. They were familiar with the research, you know. So it's clear it was just obviously like kind of bad faith, you know, typical internet bullshit. But yeah, no, it's it's I um, it's very frustrating and confusing. I I couldn't possibly. I've basically stayed out of the medical debates over COVID, other than saying I think the vaccines are safe, and I, I've gotten vaccinated at every turn. But I, this idea that it should be obvious to people that Joe Rogan is full of shit. Um, and I, I don't think he's done well on COVID stuff and vaccine stuff, but there's so many examples of public health authorities tripping all over themselves and fucking up very basic stuff. So this idea that we should just automatically trust him that they've covered themselves in glory. I, I think it's delusional because if, if you understand how the average Joe Rogan listener sees the world and what their information sources are, it's just unrealistic. And if you want to convince them to seek out better expertise you're going to need to take uh have a softer touch than that so um anyway i i'm with you it's it's a horrible time to try to understand this stuff but i uh appreciate the call yeah, and the co- the covid stuff makes it all the more pressing because it's just like that you know it's just changing uh every day it seems like and so it's really hard to just kind of get a sense of what is and isn't accurate yeah absolutely um thank you andrew okay thanks we have another andrew two andrews in a row yeah, let's hear it for the uh, Andrews today. <laughs> um, oh, uh, if, if it's not uh, untoward, Jesse, um, just sticking up for other Andrews. Um, MIT has something called Open Courseware, where you can take their stat courses completely free of charge. You don't get credit for. Doing oh, if it's intro- if it's introductory stats, that would be a great yeah, idea in, for, to, in response to that last question. They, they have like everything that you could. It, it's kind of crazy how much of their stuff they put up there for free, but it's introductory stats like game theory, like I took a cosm- like a universal cosmology course on there um, oh, wow. from the guy who invented it. Um, That's yeah. awesome. Um, and then uh, the other thing, um, I recommend this for everyone. Um, there's another free course uh, from something called the Santa Fe Institute, um, where uh, a lot of the early work on chaos theory was done. And um, they have a thing called Complexity Explorer. If you take that... Um, I, I mean that that honestly changed the way I see the whole world. But just um, for for the other Andrew, um, just wanted to throw those things out there. Those are great recommendations. Um, I so uh, back to the COVID stuff here. Uh, I, I had a colleague um, I was fairly close with who actually died of COVID. Um, he was thirty five. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear uh, that. In, in, in uh, he wouldn't get vaccinated, and I I kind of understand where he was coming from from his priors. So he he was African American. Um, you know, the government, you know, the U S government obviously has a horrible history of, you know, putting things under the rug. And we both work in an industry where, you know, if we accidentally charge someone 37 cents, we go in front of like a full audit review panel to explain exactly how we figured out who was, you know, impacted and what we're going to do to give them back their 37 cents plus the interest that was charged on it. Um, and he (laughs) was, you know, telling right. me that he was very uneasy that no one ever tried to do that with vaccine data. And they just wanted everyone to accept without any sort of deeper analysis that, you know, it was equally safe for all cohorts across genders and everything. Um, so I, I guess my question to you is, do you like one of the reasons I like you, uh, if, if someone can be a fan of a journalist, is you're not afraid to say that things are complicated and not not narratively satisfying. Um, 
So do you see that yeah. as like a, a big problem for the entire industry? Because it seems like there's no rewards um, now to, to give something that's, you know, not going to cause like a Democrat or Republican to cheer for you. Yeah, no, I think it, that's a huge problem in that um, I, I, I'd i like to think everything I write has some degree of nuance, but like the stuff I write that can be boiled down to like this idea is wrong or this person is stupid gets way more attention and engagement, which for me often translates directly to revenue than the much more nuanced or sort of soft-spoken stuff. So it's a big incentives problem. Um, and I think, you know, uh, I'm, I'm very pro-vaccine, but, but when you have a disease that really seems to spare kids and it's so statistically unlikely it will really harm them. That's my understanding. You, you do need to at least be able to talk about risks and benefits. And I think pretending that you're not, you can't even have that conversation without throwing the door open to outright vaccine denialism. And I, right. I really find that stance frustrating because or, or at just, least show that you thought about it in more than a cursory way. Yeah. And, and if you have an environment where you will be accused of vaccine denialism, just for making what are fairly basic public health points, that that's really bad. Right. And, 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 you know, we should say that as a general rule, like this power of saying, here's this vaccine, you basically need to have it to operate in the world normally should be something that only happens under like extraordinary circumstances. And I'm, I'm participating in that because I can live a pretty normal life in Brooklyn because of, because I'm vaccinated, but you can't say that's not a little bit weird or that someone couldn't abuse that power. There's just, there's very little skepticism of authority and healthy skepticism of the government. The same people who believe the government is infused top down with white supremacy. Right. will sometimes do whatever the, the Biden administration says, which is deranged. Yeah. The, the skepticism that does exist is, is cancerous and counterproductive. Um, so, uh, and then for the next thing, uh, so I just had a son, so Congratulations. I fix the entire universe. Oh, yes. That makes sense. Yeah. He's on, he's on top of me right now. So can, can I suggest something? And I'm just going to try to take a couple minutes and just ask for your opinion as a journalist. Um, this sure. is really just something I, I've thought in my head for like the last 10 years. And it just never seemed like a, a if if we had adjudication that existed outside of journalism and, you know, it like, like a jury selection system where you could show like a broad, you know, swath of political affiliations had looked at an article or a statement from a public figure and said, is this true or not true and broke it down by topic. Do you think that would create a negative pressure on journalists to stop, you know, saying things that are like wildly untrue? Like, I mean, Joy Reid, I remember when she said that Kyle Rittenhouse crossed state lines with a gun. I mean, that's just so such a black and white, obvious thing. Yeah. It, it, it seems like if there was some sort of system like that out there that, that kind of restored our long-term memory about what people are saying moment to moment, that that might create yeah. that sort of negative pressure. Um, you know, I would like to think it would. I guess my concern is... So like with the Rittenhouse stuff or even the Jacob Blake stuff, like people mostly will convince themselves that the people correcting them are doing so in bad faith or they're maggot shuds or conservatives or like annoying centrists. So I think like, I like what you're suggesting because part of the problem is I, I do think a lot of the fact checking we have, some of it is valuable, but it's clearly from a left of center perspective. So some sort of like truly nonpartisan fact checker would be useful I just think it would immediately get tarred by the people being fact-checked as having the wrong politics or they'd call some sort of process foul. But I, in general, I think we need to move more toward what you're saying of mm-hmm. – I was just astonished. I mean the the – after the Rittenhouse uh, verdict, the number of really high-profile people on the left who just had no fucking clue what actually happened and who gleefully continued to spread misinformation about that case often – they'd spread misinformation about stuff that had been debunked eight or 10 months prior. Uh, and this goes right up to Nicole Hannah Jones. I don't want to single her out, but if Pulitzer winners are doing this, how can you oh, I know. say we don't have a fake news problem on the left? I, I, that was a, one of those holy shit moments for me where, where we desperately just need better sort of epistemic guardrails. And, and so anyway, yeah. I, th- I think you're on the right track. I just think a lot of this stuff sounds great in theory, but then when you actually roll it yeah. out, it'll human well, nature will mess it up. Right. I mean, for, for, for you in particular, I mean, if, if it was broken down by topic, doesn't it become harder to ignore if it says, you know, this person is always right about X and they're not right about Y? 
you know, yeah. you might in particular do that, but if you're the end user who's consuming, you know, the, the adjudication process and, you know, it's right about nine out of 10 things, doesn't that start to over time build your trust in it? I think it could in theory. Okay. I'm just thinking of all the, all the stuff I've written where I've been told that I said stuff that has been quote unquote debunked where it hasn't been anywhere close to right. debunked. So I just think we roll out this system and the, the left of center fact checkers within this new system will be pressured to apply asymmetric standards of evidence to one right. set of issues, the right leading ones. But anyway, I, I I'm with you that it's a, I think it's a good idea in general. I'm just, you know, okay. I'd have to see it in practice. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Joseph, finally someone who isn't an Andrew. There are too many Andrews. Hello. I'm good. How are you? Um, so I, uh, I wanted to push back a little bit on one of your things in the last, I'm a primo. So I listened to your last, uh, thing last night and, um, sure. You mentioned something about NPRs, um, like viewership or, you know, they're not being an audience for some of the stuff that they were saying, but if this is something that I've noticed for a while, cause I like liked NPR on Instagram and Facebook. And if you ever look at their stories, it's always, you know, they're always obviously designed to fit their sort of progressive narrative. That's not really representative of most Americans. And then if you look at the comments, they're like remarkably popular. This, I guess the stories, you know, they're, um, it's kind of like everybody is, I guess, woke, you know, they're all, clearly buying it. into the narrative and it just seems like a lot of people are actually like believing some of the stuff that MPI says that just seems very, um, I don't know. Yeah. Out there. I, I think that that, so this is on Instagram. You yeah, said? I would say on Instagram and also Facebook, it's just, it's a lot of like the Russia gators and stuff like that, you know? Um, yeah. I think I think one possible explanation is that those folks are very online, and that's why they're spending time on Facebook and Instagram. The the stuff about ratings, I have some anecdotal information, mostly from Gimlet, uh, which has really tried to do podcasts about identity in what I view as a very ham-fisted way, and I am fairly confident they they just do terribly. And I think anyone who looks at Gimlet's trajectory, um, you know, Gimlet is this podcasting company that really took a turn during the reckoning toward producing these kinds of shows and reply all their flagship show. They decided to push it in more in that direction with, with complicatedly disastrous results. I don't think that's a real adverb, but um, I think it, it could be, I mean, if I go on Twitter and I say something that 90% of Americans disagree with, I can get a lot of people cheering me on because Twitter is not representative and people are sort of yeah. siloed. I mean, do you think that could be partly responsible for what you're seeing? Yeah, I think I think that's probably right. I just see like they always get a lot of reacts and just seems like yeah. I don't know how real those are to be honest though cuz like if you look at TikTok there's always like a million you know reacts on stuff that doesn't seem like it would. But yeah, I guess you're probably right. Yeah. I wish we had better data on the actual ratings, but I I that that's fair what you're saying. I just think these are folks who probably differ from like the average NPR viewer out there in America. Yeah. I guess probably most people just listen to it on the radio. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks. Cool. Thank you. All right. We're going to do Chewy and Maron. Um, and then I'm going to wrap it up just cause I got to do some other stuff. Uh, but yeah. Make next caller. Chewy. What's up? Hey, Jesse. Um, I, mine are just going to mostly be comments and feel free and pop in on, on any, on anything I say. And I'll try not to be too, I'll, I'll try to be fairly brief, but uh, first of all, I wanted to I wanted to mention that I think you guys that you and Katie got K-pop wrong. I think you were right when you said it was ketamine popping your brain, and I say that <laughs> because I had just gotten back from the club with friends doing bumps of ketamine and was coming off that, and my brain definitely popped at times. So <laughs> I think you were right you. when you said that first. So I mean, just fact checking you. <laughs> Thank you. Imported uh, misinformation is so rampant. <laughs> that's, that's, that's that's right. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, also, uh, yeah. Okay. So second, and the, no joke. I just gotten back from the, the curb. Um, but the second is, I I get a little bit confused. Maybe this is some, where you can add, add, like add a little bit of commentary. 
when people like talk about how journalist X and journalist Y, and we were talking about this like with some of the, the previous callers and, and reporting on, on COVID and whatnot. And I, I get confused by what people are meaning by this because like, I, I, I feel like I've in particular noted a lot of like complex discussion um, from like New York times and like journalism outlets that I, that I read that like about, for instance, like Omicron being uh, like a much more complicated picture. I mean, there was just like an article from January 9th in New York Times sort of actually talking about that, how like infections are a lot milder and and in some cases you just don't get them. In fact, like I ended up getting COVID, but I never felt it at all. I just knew because my friend told me he got it and then I test positive. And so I yep. feel like I feel like I'm seeing plenty of complicated discussion in the media. And so when I hear stuff like, the the you know journalists and journalism isn't like able to have complicated discussions who who are y'all talking about like i mean i guess i see a lot of complicated discussions around these topics i think there's i mean that's fair first of all the new york times is still a very good outlet and they do have tremendous resources so i guess the question would be um those careful explanatory articles laying out exactly what the situation is, what is the ratio of those versus stories where if there's Uh any hedging, it's in paragraph 20. Uh, Uh And, you know, I can't, I can't on the, on the spot tell you that I just, um, and also it could be my brain is poisoned from Twitter because I go on Twitter and all I see are deranged people. So I think you're right that people sometimes use the term, the media to, um, loosely or or without enough precision. I, I did see people like, a few people tried to argue to me that like the media did an okay job with the Rittenhouse stuff, but I just saw so many people getting basic facts wrong and so many people getting – it's like if 25% of outlets get basic facts wrong about Jacob Blake, yeah, I don't really want to hear that 75% did a good job on it because that's an incredibly high error rate for basic factual stuff that that is objectively false, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I get that. I guess it's just like – I guess – I mean that actually makes a plenty of sense. Actually, I think that's a, a like a, a, a really good point. I like, and I'm not trying to be like too shitting on anybody because we all sort of have mental frameworks in mind. Like I do. I mean, I appreciate when people are more specific about who they're talking about than just yeah. like the media and journalists. Just because I, like, mean, I get, I get people telling me like I. Well, it's important yeah. that seventy five percent did a good job, but I get why, especially if there's like a big number, you'd have a more of a mental framework. And I think that, like, you, you usually do a good job of this, and plenty of the other callers and stuff do, and it's just, like, we have those mental frameworks. I'm not trying to shit on any, but just, like, I get confused by, it. like, what I'm seeing versus when I hear other people, how they feel about it, right? And I, I'm almost trying to, like, figure that out. Like, where's that disconnect for me? Yeah. I know, I think that's all fair, and, um, uh, I, you know, if I, whenever people are like, I can't trust the New York Times anymore. I can't trust the Atlantic anymore. I tell them there's a lot of good writers at both those outlets, right. and we should, we should. I, I think Freddie DeBoer made this point that the internet would be a significantly better place if, place if we just did a better job highlighting the stuff we like rather than harping on the stuff we hate. So yeah, but then you wouldn't some, have a podcast. Um. <laughs> that's true. I, I, <laughs> yeah, people don't positivity doesn't sell. As much, but, yeah. um, the only anyway, that, anyway so yeah. last last just quick 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 um, point. I, I well, I like the last caller's idea. I um, about like a neutral fact checking. I think it's um, it's a little quaint. Uh, like it's kind of out there. It's called Glenn Kessler at the Washington Post, and he writes some of the most inane fact checks you will ever find. I because like it's I, I really <laughs> like I, I I think it's a lovely idea, but like it's it's searching for more institutions that like the basic the basic problem is just like trust and i don't think like one more one more fact checking outlet you know um with some like convoluted system of of electing the fact checkers i just i i think it sort of misses the i think it misses the problem is what i would say yeah but i'm with you uh thanks am i uh mispronouncing your name Can you hear? Yeah, there we go. No, that's not mispronouncing my name. That's great. Hi, Jesse. I, I really appreciate your work. So, so thank you for that. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. I'd that. like to loop back, if I can, to transactivism specifically. Um, sorry for not following the flow of the conversation, but um, I have a quick question on this. 
trans activists have obviously been so successful in shifting the public conversation and having an impact for their cause in a relatively short time. And I'm based in Europe, so we're a bit further down the line in terms of cultural change than, than you guys in the US. And some of this, I'm sure, is just because they were in the right place at the right moment. But I'm curious to understand more about how they did it tactically. And I wondered if, in the course of your research, if there's any information you've come across, articles, resources, where we could learn more about how trans activists have become so successful. I mean, like case studies, dispassionate analysis, how do they organize, who are the leaders, what were their tactics, what are the mechanics, so we can deconstruct it and, and learn from it and, and apply it um, perhaps to our activism and our work in general. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's complicated in that there's like no one unified thing. Trans activism, there's been a lot of different efforts. And to me, the important divide is like when North Carolina tried to pass in a state law, a bill that would have made it much harder for trans people to use the bathroom. I'm not saying there's no like outlying cases there where there might be a conversation, but for the most part, um, this is not a popular policy to try to more strictly police people on the basis of biological sex in bathrooms. Locker rooms are a different matter. Uh, there was a lot of backlash. The North Carolina Republicans, I think, lost the governorship over that. And those are the issues where like, I think trans rights activists have like a solid base of support and, and they've pushed on those. And I, I think those are, are righteous causes. There's this other slightly more radical side of it that I think mostly centers around like the most maximalist version of self ID, where if someone says they are male or female or neither or both, they are. And they, if this view doesn't really brook any exceptions. And in some cases it's been written in the state law, like, in California, you'll see the ACLU of California has an explainer saying you, it's illegal to even ask someone if they're in like the right shared locker room or whatever. So I think an important uh, divide to focus on is between the more you know mainstream people should just be allowed to go pee without being bothered and the slightly more philosophically radical, you literally are what you say. So one is a, a little bit of a compromise and the other is like a philosophical claim or, or a strong normative claim that if that person over there says they're female, I have to see them that way. I, I have a real moral imperative. I could be get in trouble for not. And um, you should check out a video Ryan Grimm re did recently. I forget what show, but it was on his Twitter feed. He basically pointed out that a uh, transgender legal group said in this report, that their polling is completely deep underwater on the uh, high school sports issue. And that's, that's a good example of like where the maximalist version of self ID might run up against other people's rights or what they believe their rights to be. It's just, it's so unpopular that this group basically said like, we don't want to draw attention to this issue. We are losing. And I think a version of that happened in the UK where the, the gender recognition act reform effort to to basically codify the maximalist version of self-id or something close to the maximalist version that proved quite unpopular right i mean there's a reason the tories withdrew it cool okay thank you that's that's very valuable appreciate it thanks Jeff. Yeah, thank you um yeah i mean th th that issue is tricky I, I i just i think that like I came of age politically uh, at a time when conservatives in the U.S. were trying to make do national constitutional amendments banning gay marriage. That's how crazy the right has been on this stuff. And I think the between that and the AIDS crisis, I think the LGBT movement has often has been forced in like a serious um, position of genuine oppression, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. But I do think the question of like compromise and like how this is going to work um is worth talking about and and i think that that report i mentioned that ryan grimm talked about is an example of that uh anyway with that i will wrap it up today i hope you are staying warm if you're in my part of the country because it's freezing uh i plan to spend the rest of the day mostly doing work and eating food and watching football i hope you have a similarly pleasant day if you like this show this format please tell other people about it get them on call and get them following me in the show and uh I'll be back soon. Thanks a lot, guys.